Back as far as 2006, Henry Jenkins coined the term convergence, and he talked about the convergence of so many technologies and practices. And I think that's the thing that communication professionals have got to get their heads around. There's not a single technology. It's the convergence of many, many technologies that is constantly changing the way we we can operate. And every one of those technologies brings advantages, but every one of them brings ethical challenges and potential problems. So technology, there you have it from one of the experts in global government communication, Professor Jim McNamara. It's often a word that scares people who work in communications because it's not in our traditional sweet set, but it's something that we have to get our heads around. So how is it that we can really understand the benefits of technology and employ them in such a way that we can help government strengthen communities and improve the well-being of citizens. Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Thank you for joining GovComs once again, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. And as I mentioned, Jim McNamara is joining us today and a distinguished professor he is at the University of Technology in Sydney, where he is also the Deputy Dean of the Faculty of Science. Jim is an internationally recognised academic known for his pioneering research into measurement and evaluation of public communication, and he is genuinely one of the world's leading experts. Jim also, very gratefully, presented at the GovComs Festival this year on that very topic. Now, Jim is also the author of 16 books, including Organisational Listening, The Missing Essential in Public Communication, and Beyond Post-Communication, Challenging Disinformation, Deception and Manipulation. But he joins me on the line. Jim McNamara, thanks very much for joining me once again on GovComs. It's a pleasure to be here. We go back, I think, um, 2015, so five years ago, you were on the program. So here we are, still chugging away, talking about this very important topic. Uh, and as for someone who was really one of the, the pioneers of the examination of uh, government and public sector communication all those years ago, you must be delighted to now see organisations such as the OECD uh, entering the stage, so to speak, to really start to, to really build on the work that you did all those years ago. It's very gratifying to see growing focus on communication. Um, and I think um, some of the crises that are facing the world at the moment, whether it's health information uh, or whatever, is, is showing the importance of communication, and particularly in democratic countries where we know that they are driven by the voice of the people, allegedly, then the voice of the people needs to be expressed and the voice of the people needs to be heard in government. And so communication is very central to that process. So listen, just about that, why do you think that it has taken so long for communication to become an area of research and examination by an organisation such as the OECD? Surely that, you know, people should have realised a bit earlier than this that this is central to the effective operation of democracy. 
I think organizations, whether it's United Nations organizations, the OECD, or whether it's uh, local governments, have always had an interest in communication, but we've seen communication primarily as speaking, as putting out information to people. And we've often made the assumption that whatever we tell people, they will hear and they will understand. But of course, communication is a much more complex uh, issue than that. And there's a lot of focus now on effective communication, which means getting messages across to people. And it also is a two-way process where organizations have to be listening to people and understanding the views of stakeholders and audiences uh, in, on, on a range of issues and across a range of cultures. And so I think we're coming to grips with the complexity of communication. Mm. And so with that, um, technology is obviously an enormous part of all of our lives in, and it, it really has you know, fundamentally changed, you know, the way that we live, the way that we work, the way that we play, and obviously the behaviours that um, are, are associated with the fact that we now have access to these wonderful digital technologies that um, give us so much joy in, in most cases, and obviously they, they have some of their, their challenges. But where do you see this, this greater issue of technology and, and how government can think about technology as a way of um, restoring and building trust with citizens and stakeholders? We have to remember that communication uh, in the end of the, get the day is a human activity. Communication is about creating understanding, about human interaction. But of course, a challenge for governments is that we're not doing this with just one person or a small group of people. Uh, even local governments have to deal with thousands of people. State and national governments have to deal with millions of people. And so technology, therefore, plays a key role because listening in terms of public communication can't just be done with our ears. We can't directly engage with every citizen and every citizen can't directly engage with government. And so a range of technologies are used for speaking, if you like. We use paid media advertising. We use social media platforms and websites, but also increasingly we're employing a range of technologies uh, that enable us to listen to people, whether it's through public consultations, online consultations, uh, whether it's through uh, using text analysis of submissions and, and so forth. Mm. So with that, where, where do you see this all, all rolling and, and where, how do you see that government communicators uh, in terms of skills need to start to prepare to take advantage um, of these digital technologies? There's a couple of issues uh, that are important for communication professionals in terms of technology. And I think it's fair to say that, first of all, communication professionals don't need to be and probably never can become technical experts. We don't need to know the details of the technology. But I think there's three things I could say. One is that we, first of all, need to have a, a, an attitude and a culture of true engagement. And that is that we need to be able to articulate and speak clearly. And we need to be able to listen to those audiences who speak to us, who may speak through a website or through social media. The second thing is we need to be aware of the technologies and the methods that can facilitate communication, because today there's a huge range of those, and I still see them being underutilized. Just as a quick example, I saw a public consultation by government in the UK a few years ago that received 127,400 submissions. Now, many of those were eight or 10 pages or more, and that was millions of words. 
you can't read those and make sense of it manually. And so there was a need there for machine learning, very advanced tools and technologies to make sense of that vast body of unstructured data. When it comes to that, the third point I'd make is that as well as being aware, communication professionals then often need to partner. And so they may partner by bringing in specialists such as people who are specialists in data analytics or machine learning software, or they may use external. Uh, so I think it's a question of attitude, awareness, and then very often partnering when it comes to the employment of actual, actual tools and technologies. Okay, so let's just pack, unpack each of those because I think there's plenty in each of them. You went to the – your first point there was really around um, attitude and culture and you mentioned about, you know, true engagement. How do you encourage that sort of culture? How do you build that culture over, over time in teams, um, not just government comms teams as such but also those cross-functional teams that have got to start to be built um, to be able to bring – all of the you know the various skills together in order to to create a capability i think that the the culture is, is possibly even the most important thing because we often come to communication uh, and not just communication professionals but often the the ministers and the heads of departments and agencies that we work for come to communication with a with a view that the organization uh, knows best that the organization has expertise and a lot of the time there's an assumption that the organization can simply tell people uh, what they should do and of course in a democracy um, that is not the end of the story governments need to be able to listen and we talk about engagement and engagement means not only going out to talk to stakeholders uh, to, to tell them about plans and to inform them, but going out to stakeholders to really truly engage. Communication is a two-way uh, process. And I think that unless you've got a culture that you might learn something from listening, that it might be beneficial, if you start with a culture that says, we're the experts, we know what we're doing, we just need to tell people, that doesn't work very well, particularly in a democratic society. And so I think that uh, I talk about it in my research as saying all the technologies in the world won't help us unless we have uh, a culture of listening. So I talk about an architecture of listening that starts with a culture that we actually want to listen to people. And here I'm talking about a very important concept of not just listening to elites and not just listening to the loud voices. How does a government listen to listen to society and reach out into marginalized communities and communities that are disenfranchised uh, or their voices are not being heard. That's a very difficult challenge for government, but it's something we need to do from an ethical and a moral perspective. And uh, so it does require a culture to say that these per people deserve to be listened to. It, it will be beneficial to listen to them and engage with them and hear their voices, as well as government giving information to those communities. Hmm. So, in, just in terms of of that, um, uh, perhaps humility uh, that is required to underpin these types of uh, effective cultures. Uh, what do you think the impact of COVID nineteen has been in in that wider um, government and public sector context? Do you believe that that it has it has had some sort of impact around? building these, uh, these genuine um, and, and authentic and, and hum more humble cultures? It's a very interesting question to look at 2020 and COVID-19. And I guess we won't know the, the full impact 
uh, on society until perhaps sometime in the future. Uh, so I don't have data at this stage to be able to, to, to really present empirical evidence, but there is certainly change happening. And it's rather interesting that already we're seeing some evidence in both government and even in the corporate sector that COVID-19 has brought some enormous change and, and ironically, some very positive change. Uh, the way stepping aside from government just for a moment, the way banks have responded. Banks have got among the worst reputation of organisations, and yet they have been far more responsive and far more lenient with people during the challenges of COVID-19. I think governments, uh, you know, health workers have the highest trust rate in the world at the moment. And I think governments have reached out to communities and, and taken a lead. Um, and Australia can take its hat off and, uh, and, and take a bow because our national and our state governments have done a, a, a quite a, a really good job. So I think they have been communicating information to us and they've been responding and listening to people and working with uh, various health authorities, local communities. So I think, ironically, and there's an old saying, never let a good crisis go to waste. Uh, ironically, I think we've actually seen some very positive things a coming together of community, which actually the word communication comes from. It comes from the Latin word communis, meaning community. Interesting, uh, isn't it, though? That, and this has obviously been clearly, a, you know, a once-in-a-generation incredible shock to the system globally. Um, but we've had shocks before. Obviously, nothing quite on, on this scale, certainly in my lifetime. But, you know, say the global financial crisis was, again, a, a big global shock back, you know, around 2008. But things sort of tend to go back to go back to how they were before. So how how do you take something like this major shock of COVID? And I know you don't have that in, empirical um, evidence in front of you at the moment from which to make some of those decisions. But how would you be recommending people um, help to sustain the change so we don't go back to the, to the bad old habits and the bad old ways that perhaps um, were... Uh, in our, some of our work and in some of our mindsets previously? I think pervasiveness uh, is the key issue with COVID-19, meaning it affects everybody. Uh, what we saw with the global financial crisis, in many analyses, they describe it as quite disappointing what happened afterwards because uh, an elite group of uh, financial institutions seem to have generally come through it okay, uh, but not everyone suffered. And many, many people in the, in the community suffered, uh, particularly in the United States and, say, housing, uh, but it wasn't everybody. And I think that uh, elite groups were able to uh, shore up their, their, their standing, they're able to get aid from government, and many people are disappointed that the global financial crisis did not lead to major structural change. COVID-19 affects every human on the planet. And I think governments have responded accordingly and realised the enormous responsibility they have. And citizens realise how much we need our governments, our, our departments of health and our local health authorities, as well as many other parts of government. And so even down to the taxation office, that is, you know, uh, in recent days, I've received an overdue notice from the tax office that I seem to have overlooked accidentally. Uh, and it was a polite 
letter. It wasn't a demand. It was saying, you might have overlooked this, and if you're facing difficulties, let us know. Um, so I think it's the pervasiveness that it's affect everyone. We have to come together as a community. And therefore, you know, as I've said already, community, the word communication uh, is directly related. Communis, the Latin for community. And I think, therefore, communication both ways, uh, from the people to the government, from government to people, uh, has really become essential. Uh, and it's the glue that will keep us together. So if I was to to ask you to put yourself in the shoes of a say a someone who's running a communication and in, engagement branch in a in a major federal government department understanding the the context that you just described um, and and some of the opportunity and challenge that comes um, with introducing and, and sustaining change what are some of the simple things that you would be doing to to try to start to make um, further progress this probably simple is a difficult word to use in communication because what we learn, communication is not easy. We often make assumptions that just because we tell someone something that they will behave accordingly. Well, anyone who's got children or friends or parents know that that's not the case. We can tell people many, many things many, many times and it has no impact. Um, so I think that there's uh, the most simple fundamental thing is recognizing that communication is a two-way process. And I think the communication professions, uh, which have been dominated by advertising, which is a one-way practice, uh, primarily uh, a lot of public relations work is one way. Uh, campaigns tend to be a big focus often in government. Uh, I think we need to recognize that consultation, that engagement, that the two-way flow uh, is very, very important. And ultimately, the satisfaction of citizens and customers will be increased more by being listened to than it will be by being told things. And of course, we do need to inform people. Uh, COVID's shown us that, that we need to tell people uh, how to behave safely and how to keep themselves safe. Uh, but we've also got to be, you know, and what I found in my research is that we spend 80 to 90% of our time and our budgets on distributing information. Uh, and yet communication should be a 50-50 process. So I think that's the most fundamental. And then the complexity comes with that. And it also comes with the wide range of technologies, because don't forget in government communication, we've got to do all this at scale. We've got to do it with thousands, hundreds of thousands and millions of citizens. And so scale becomes a very big challenge. Now, again, I, I do want to come to that technology because that was the second point that you raised um, just a moment ago. But I'm, I, I'm interested just perhaps as a bit of an aside that the language of campaigns in this sort of transformed 24-7, always on um, engagement communication with citizens. Do you think that it's a, it's a word that's time has passed? Um, I'm... I'm cautious about the word campaigns. I think there is a role for campaigns because you take an issue like road safety um, and the Christmas period that's coming up. We do need to be uh, having campaigns to remind people about driving safely. But I am have to say, I am very disappointed that the UK government that has been a leader in government communication for many years declared 2019 the year of marketing and all of its key focus was on campaigns. Um, and to me, that is that is right away adopting a one-way approach that we're going to market, we're going to sell you, uh, we have all the information, we know what we're doing, we're going to tell you. And I think that mm -hmm. campaigns... Um, 
they are necessary. They certainly need to be conducted ethically. We've seen a lot of campaigns recently, including election campaigns, where there's been some very questionable ethical practices, um, both in the UK, the US, um, and sometimes in Australia. And so I think there's a role for campaigns, but campaigns cannot be the dominant and central part of communication. Communication is much, much broader than that. You could look at the other side and think about things like public consultation and citizen and stakeholder engagement. And in terms of that, you know, this sort of evolving, uh, you know, there are the traditional sort of uh, areas, you know, of communications, of marketing, of stakeholder engagement, of behavioural insights. How do you see this joined up capability starting to come together, um, enabled by technology in many ways to, to deliver better outcomes for, for citizens and communities? I think with communication, um, we've got to use all of the tools and technologies available, but but simply recognise that communication is about building community and commonness of understanding. So it's got to involve speaking and listening. We want to use a range of technologies, and many of the technologies uh, can be used for for two-way communication. You know, websites are a way to distribute information, but websites also can have pop-ups and pages for feedback where we listen to people and receive information. The, the, the concern to me is the ratio in that all of the technologies, we tend to use them 80 to 90% for distributing our messages. Uh, and we constantly talk about being on message. Uh, but these tools, social media is a classic example where it actually is public, it's social, and yet many organizations still need use social media for distributing their own messages. And I think that's the shift that we've all got to make uh, is to use the technologies, but to use them for two-way uh, communication and engagement. Hmm. Now, that was your the, the second point that you did raise, this, this notion of awareness and, and understanding of technologies, and, and you alluded to this huge range of technologies, which clearly there are uh, out there. Well, what's your advice, again, uh, um, to people working in you know, government and public sector communications about how they can improve you know, their awareness and understanding and indeed the operation of these technologies? I think communication professionals do have to do some learning because we we know that uh, continuous learning and lifelong learning is now important in almost every field. Uh, probably no field has seen so much dramatic change as communication over the past few few years um, because today we, we've got access to real-time voice, real-time video, near real-time text and data. Uh, we also, but on top of that, we have geolocation data. We know instantly where people are. They know where we are. Uh, we've got vast amounts of information available on the web. Uh, we've got satellites. We've got all other forms of uh, of, of terrestrial communication and of course we've got the cloud uh, and I think what's what's changing is that there's no one technology that's driving change today you know back as far as 2006 Henry Jenkins coined the term convergence and he talked about the convergence of so many technologies and practices and I think that's the thing that communication professionals have got to get their heads around is not a single technology. It's the convergence of many, many technologies that is constantly changing the way we, we can operate. And every one of those technologies brings advantages, but every one of them brings ethical challenges and potential problems. And you can look at issues like algorithms, for example, where they help us every day, 
But of course, algorithms also bake in bias. They also uh, can skew things. Um, and it's very, very hard to, to argue with an algorithm, for example. Mm. So with that, and, and in terms of this notion of, of continuous learning and understanding the technologies in the, this vast range of, of technologies, you, you mentioned also that it's the comms people don't necessarily have to be expert, but they do have to know how to you know, gain the, the, the valuable insights perhaps that can be gathered from um, these particular um, technologies and, and the associated data. So in a practical sense, again, how, how do we start that journey to be more technologically uh, uh, enabled in, in the way that we do our work? How do we start to make the change? I think a lot of the uh, there's a number of ways we can do that, and I think certainly in universities we have a responsibility. Uh, we're constantly upgrading our, our courses. Uh, we're also introducing increasingly a lot of uh, micro credentials and short form learning that enables practitioners who've already graduated with degrees to come back and do very short courses. I think the professional institutes and associations uh, also have a key role to play because they conduct professional development, um, and we're not talking as I said about turning uh, communication professionals into technical experts. One thing that hasn't changed, if I think back to early in my career and, and others think back, uh, you know, you think of printing. We used to print things on paper, but we didn't go to the printing press and set up the printing press and decide the font. We work with graphic designers. We work with printers. We work with experts in those fields, but we knew the capabilities. We knew what a PMS color was. We knew how to, uh, how to write. And I think the thing is today, um, we we need to understand uh, the technologies that are there. We need to reach out to partners. But the role of communicators also is to uh, look at how those things are used. So issues such as ethics and standards that are applied, whether it's algorithms, whether it's artificial intelligence, technologies tend to be neutral. They can be used for good or they can be used for evil. Now, the, the, the printer doesn't decide what goes on the page and often even the social media platform doesn't decide what goes on the, on the, on the web page. It's the, the users decide that. And so communication professionals have got a very frontline role in looking at how these platforms are used and applied, how algorithms might be applied in their organization and giving advice to management on issues such as the strategy and the ethics of, of these, not just focusing on the content. The content becomes important, but there's a bigger, bigger focus there. So I think knowing the good and the bad, knowing how they can be used. And when you look at issues like ethics, um, there's studies showing that it's not widely uh, talked about or studied within advertising or public relations or political communication, and sometimes not even in government communication. So I think we can do a lot more at that high strategic level, leaving the technical uh, exercises and activities to the technical experts, but doing the planning, doing the strategy, thinking of the ethics, thinking of the community needs and so on. Mm. Now, in terms um, of that and this sort of evolve and the impact of these technologies, do you see the sort of traditional makeup of communications areas uh, and the function evolving and changing? And if you do, what, how, how do you see it or how would you describe sort of an ideal model um, to, to take advantage of, of the changes that are, that are taking place? There's a couple of trends that, are, that I see across the world and, and some of them are good and some of them are not so good. Um, 
one of the trends uh, that that is being talked about a lot in the professional literature is a shift of a lot of communication into marketing, uh, whether it's public relations or government communication. Uh, and I've mentioned even governments such as the UK government is has bracketed a lot of its communication under marketing. I think we need to recognise that there's a role for marketing, uh, but also a lot of communication is not about marketing. A lot of communication is about engagement, about listening, about engaging community voices and so forth. So I'd, I'm not comfortable with the trend to say, bring it all under marketing. Uh, the opposite trend uh, that is happening worldwide is that organizations are looking at shifting the communication function or expanding it beyond uh, the sort of day-to-day -day activity, the technical work of writing and posting comments to what some call a chief communication officer, to a strategic level where the communication function is not only doing communication, but actually giving strategic advice to the organization. And so when we look at the makeup of a senior executive team, uh, there's a, often a chief financial officer and there's a chief, uh, uh, you know, in uh, IT uh, chief information officer. Should there be a chief communication officer bringing communication up to the strategic level? I see that as a very positive trend because I think too much of the field of communication practice is at the day-to-day -day doing level. We do communication, but giving advice to organization, ensuring that communication is not the only view, but it's one of the perspectives in all policymaking and all decision-making. And do you think, though, that the impact of some of the technology that you were talking about before, such as, you know, ubiquitous connectivity, um, mobility, 14 billion mobile phones in the world, do you think that this has shifted the importance of communication now that uh, everybody who government needs to connect with, or not, not everybody, but sorry, a, a, a substantial proportion of the people who government needs to, you know, reach, influence and engage are now carrying devices that means that they are potentially connected to government. And so there is the opportunity to then um, activate that communication, uh, that connect connection. Do you think that that is changing the role and importance of communication? The role and importance of communication is certainly being affected by, uh, by the range of media uh, and I think one of the key things, first of all, is, as you say, not only is everyone connected, but people have a choice of platforms. So 20 years ago, people had to write a letter to the editor. Uh, they really couldn't speak to television. Television was a one-way medium. Today, the average citizen can go online in a moment on social platforms. Uh, they can send messages. They can talk to hundreds of thousands or millions of others. So, yes, uh, governments as well as corporations and other organizations have got to realize that uh, the, the platforms are much more open and that citizens can go out and be quite vocal. Uh, activist organizations can speak out. So that's one of the big changes that we need to be aware of, that we don't, in, you know, 20 years ago, we could call a press conference and put all the media in one room and control the message, and that was, that was the communication campaign. Uh, that's no longer possible. Um, if we, if, you know, if, if government is trying to engage with people, the conversation is going on all of the time, and many, many people are participating. So we have to engage in much more diverse ways and much more interactive ways overall. And then, of course, there's the, the technology aspects that we do have to be very careful with a lot of the tools, uh, whether they are behavioral insights or algorithms, because they can both help communication, um, but they can also cause serious problems. And there are a lot of concerns 
concerns about uh, marginalized groups, for example, if the algorithm says that you can or can't borrow money, um, that's it. If you if it says you're eligible for taxation relief or health care uh, or, or some government service, if the algorithm says that, it's very hard to reach a human. So a lot of communication services that are relying on algorithms um, can actually become very, very difficult to engage with and great biases can be built in. Which again, I suppose, circles back to the uh, part of your uh, an earlier answer where you were talking about ethics and perhaps uh, an absence of or less uh, emphasis on ethics. So again, how, how would you build um, a greater influence and emphasis on ethics? And what are some of the things that we need to be understanding such that we can make better decisions? I think we're seeing um, a lot more um cross-disciplinary work occurring. If I was constructing or working, and I do work with the World Health Organization and a number of bodies in, in, in uh, improving communication, what we're seeing is we're having to work with technologists uh, to get advice on what's possible and how to use it. But also we're even seeing in, in the case uh, with handling of data, we're having to work very closely with uh, lawyers uh, and understand legal aspects. And uh, there's a group in the United States called the Data and Society Institute that is very, very concerned about how data can be used, as well as how things like algorithms and artificial intelligence are being used. And that sort of specialized knowledge is beyond the range of the communication professional. But increasingly, the chief communication officer is sitting with uh, technologists and sitting with lawyers and sitting with others, other specialists uh, in a team approach. So I think that, that sort of interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary work is going to be more common in the future rather than the communication department down the hall that you go down and brief to write a press release when you've already made the decision. Uh, I think that, that should be a huge shift in government where we're working together in teams with the legal aspects, the community aspects, the technological aspects, uh, and, and the communicators also bringing knowledge of culture and psychology to the equation. How how would you make that happen? How how do you build that that cross function? How do you sell it into an organisation so that they understand the you know the benefits that you just described, and make the changes rather than just thinking it's that as you say, you know the department down at the end of the corner who's just going to make something happen when we're all finished doing the work. It's uh, it does require a, a top down and a bottom up approach, I believe, because. Um, one of the challenges is what we refer to as the seat at the table. So when policies and, and major decisions are made, they're made by a senior executive, a senior management team, which often has financial representation and legal representation, is communication at the table. So that's the concept of the chief communication officer or having your communication director there with all the other advisors, the technologists, the financial, the legal and so forth, and the policy advisors, rather than briefing communication at the end as, a, as an implementation function. I think bottom-up, though, also communicators have got to get out of their silo. Uh, we have tended to operate in silos and do what we're told, and I think uh, communication professionals have got to reach out and engage uh, with others. And, uh, you know, I work with scientists and I'm not a scientist. I'm a social scientist. I don't understand antibiotic resistance or microbial contamination. But I sit down and work with those people and we, we work in teams where we've got the ethicists, the the, uh, the disciplinary scientists, the communication teams. So 
I think we've got to drive it bottom up and take some self-responsibility. But I also think uh, giving communication a seat at the table in decision-making uh, is an important uh, high-level decision. And that answer perhaps alludes to the third point around partnering and partnering um, effectively. How would you sell the benefits when you, you know, with these groups, with finance, with legal, um, with the ethicists, with the scientists, you know, um, uh, the finance people? How, how do you get them to see that you can, if you're a communications professional, add value to these, as you mentioned um, earlier, these very complex, difficult challenges? The showing value does come back to one of the other Achilles heels of the communication field, and that is the measurement and evaluation. Um, it's an area that uh, the field has not been notorious, not been good at and notoriously bad at in some cases. Um, and we've often measured ourselves by our output, how much information we put out. Well, actually, all that tells you is you're a cost center. Uh, the value is going to be measured in a number of ways. So, for example, if we can demonstrate that we can increase uh, public awareness of, of an important issue. Uh, with the World Health Organization, it might be hand washing or it might be wearing a mask. Um, ultimately, that can be connected to reduce contamination and diseases and showing a real societal benefit. So demonstrating awareness, um, also making better decisions that result in less crises. So if communication can show that by considering various stakeholders and by through good communication, an organization can reduce the number of crises and problems that it has, though that ends up saving a huge amount of time and a lot of embarrassment and so forth. So becoming better at measurement and evaluation is, is something that many of us have harped on for decades. Um, and where we do see good evaluation done, uh, that's where communication is being brought into the decision-making team and as part of strategy to say, let's think through all of our stakeholders. Let's think through how this will play out. Let's think through how this can be a mutual uh, consideration and that all parties are considered. Bringing that sort of communication to the high level uh, avoids crises, gets better results in most cases. What's your view around you know, positioning the communication um, function in the risk discussion and you know communication and engagement as a as a as a mitigation of risk looking at risk is one aspect but certainly uh, it's not the only place that we should consider communication my view is that communication has to be considered in all decisions uh, and one of the things we then do in decision making is we often carry out a risk assessment and so in a risk assessment we will look at legal risks financial risks um, politicians look at political risk, um, communication has an input to, to, the, to the risk assessment and, and risk mitigation, but that's not the only place, place it plays out because, as we've discussed before, uh, communication ranges from campaigns such as road safety campaigns and health campaigns uh, where we might want to increase, uh, you know, we, we will need soon to be promoting vaccination. And so clear persuasive and credible communication about vaccination is going to be very, very important to society. Um, risk is often the flip side of that, and that is what is the risk if we don't uh, have, if we don't have a good uptake of vaccination, but uh, there'll be many other contributors to risk. And, you know, uh, I've just been through a risk assessment in my university where we had to look at financial risk, legal risk, uh, risk to students, risks to staff, risk to our budget and financial situation. There's many, many risks. Poor communication or lack of communication is one of those factors to be considered. Hmm. What's your view on the the current 
capability of uh, government communication, um, as I, I spoke more broadly, and this is obviously very general um, commentary, but obviously the um, the WPP research, the OECD research, has really shown now that the you know the capability is not overly strong, you know, under-resourced, under-appreciated. And what we're describing in this conversation is really a, a movement up the value chain, up into those areas of, of greater influence. How able or how ready do you feel that the, the current um, government communication, public sector capability around the world is in, or, in order to start this journey um, to influence? It's really interesting looking at government communication and corporate communication, and, and uh, my researchers stand both. In fact, my organisational listening project that uh, has been going on for five years has now looked at over 100 organisations and approximately 40% government, 40% corporate, and the remainder are NGOs and associations. Um, I, I have to be honest and say I started out with a perception because I originally came from the corporate sector um, in working in agencies, uh, that the corporate world was ahead of the uh, the government uh, sector. Um, my research has shown the opposite in a number of respects. Uh, first of all, um, looking at the ethics of communication and how ethically it's done, most of the sins are in the area of marketing and political communication, and government tends to be, in general, far more um, far more ethical. Uh, far more considerate of the of the audience rather than a more manipulative approach, which happens in in marketing in the corporate sector and in some political communication. So I think we've got to be careful to generalise. Um, I also did a lot of research with the European Commission and the UK Government Communication Service. Uh, I've done more there than I have in Australia, ironically, but I found the UK GCS to be among the most professional uh, group of communicators that I had come across. Based on the level of training, they conduct constant training. Uh, they develop, uh, have a very extensive professional development program uh, and various levels of, of their 4,000 uh, civil servants who are in communication. So uh, I've developed a fairly high opinion of government communicators where I think the WPP research and other studies do point to a lack, and that is very often they lack resources. They lack tools and resources to, to do the job, the very, very important job that they have to do, in particularly in democratic countries. So I think there's good and bad. I think there's a strong ethical base, a big commitment to professional development, uh, a, a lot of attention to uh, even working with academics and social science, social scientists and researchers and behavioural insights. Don't forget, behavioural insights came out of government communication. That's where it originated. So there's innovation and there's there's some great work. Uh, but I do think, yes, uh, the areas of resources and, and priorities, uh, the government communication people sometimes struggle. And just before we close, as we sort of, you know, we've been sort of looking back, I suppose, and looking at today, but if I could sort of, you know, turn your head to the future and, and, and perhaps ask, where, you know, as, as one of the world's leading academics in, in this space, uh, and clearly the listening uh, project is, is ongoing and will continue to go, but where, where are you looking what are you looking at over the next, you know, five to ten years? What's, what's got your interest and, and where are you going to put your attention? The 
the opening up of media platforms from a very narrow days of media monopolies, uh, which were a problem, that opening up has, has brought some great benefits, but it's also brought us into a, an era that some refer to as post-truth. Uh, we're seeing disinformation. So the more you open up media and the more open channels you have, uh, of course, you have the potential for misinformation and disinformation as well as information to be spread. And I think one of the big challenges for the next decade, having having uh, democratized the channels of communication and public communication, we've got to work out ways to come together to better manage uh, misinformation and disinformation because it's, it's looking like, and I found this in researching my latest book, it is having some very negative effects uh, in society. Um, and there's no simple answer. Some say just regulate, um, but the more we regulate media, that can lead to other problems. Some blame the social platforms, but we, my, my research suggests that we all play a role. We need media literacy. We need better digital media literacy in the community. We need our fact-checking organisations. We need more social responsibility in the producers of information, such as the advertisers and the marketers. And we need better better controls and self-regulation within the social platforms. So I think that, that to me is the big area that we've got more and more communication, but unfortunately some of it is unethical, manipulative and, and discommunication. And how do we how do we keep the channels open, but how do we manage that? Mm. Do you think that now that this sort of the, the, the you know the, the cat's been belled in a way, do you think people are starting to be a little bit more careful about what they see? And obviously we've seen, you know, some of the labeling during the recent um, presidential election, you know, from Twitter. Uh, about, you know, this is contested, this is not a, a statement of fact. Do you think that that's maturing um, and do you think that it will gain legs? I think social responsibility and self-regulation from the social media platforms is is still really in its infancy. Uh, Facebook and Twitter and those have made some efforts recently and I, and I think, you know, they took me to commend it for that. But does it go far enough? I think absolutely not. If you look at the the amount of disinformation that's out there, the other big factor is we've already done a lot of damage in terms of trust. Uh, if you look at m many of the trust studies, whether they're Oxford University or the Edelman Trust Barometer, we see that people uh, are collapsing into an era of distrust where they don't trust. Uh, fortunately, they trust our health workers, nurses and doctors and scientists are near the top of the list. But it's very worrying for me to see that politicians and journalists are near the bottom of trust in almost all surveys. Now, we need our politicians to behave a bit more responsibly, and we certainly need journalism, independent journalism, to be trusted because that plays a key role in democracy. And we're also seeing a lot of institutions that their trust levels are hovering around the 50% mark. We need our key institutions to be trusted more. And communicators are not alone in, the, in that fight, but professional communicators will will have a key role in trying to rebuild trust uh, and that that along with uh, that is a corollary if you like of the disinformation problem the disinformation is causing the collapse and driving the collapse of public trust how do we address the disinformation and how do we re rebuild trust because a lack of trust leads to a lack of cohesion in society um, and it leads to people seeking out alternatives which may not be good for them politically or health-wise or any other way. 
Just so a final question then um, around exactly that particular point, you know, this threat of disinformation, misinformation, uh, but lining up on the other side of that is this democratisation of the factors of media production and distribution and that government does have the capability to very quickly um, produce useful, relevant, consistent content to be able to perhaps contest some of that disinformation and misinformation. Where do you see that sort of media-like function evolving in government in terms of being able to produce compelling, rich, um, multimedia content um, that, you know, states a government's position very clearly uh, and, is in a, and is in a form and a quality um, that people will be um, encouraged perhaps to share? In terms of dealing with, uh, with this information, I, I think it's a really important question that we must preserve democratization of media platforms. I don't think anyone wants to go back to the days of a handful of media barons owning and controlling most of our media. But that democratization brings uh, a number of challenges and professional communicators have got a key role there because it's not only the capability to produce content, it, it, it's also how you phrase and structure that content. And what we know with uh, a lot of the research into how do you deal with disinformation, how do you deal with uh, reluctance to vaccinate, for example, you've really got to know the psychology. You've got to understand culture. And what we're learning there is that different cultures behave differently with different levels of respect for authority. Some are anti-authority, some are very respectful and deferring. We know that um, simply refuting, simply coming out and saying, saying it's wrong doesn't work. You can actually get a backfire effect. And so that's where professional communicators really, it's not just the technology and the content, it's how you go approach, approach that, uh, how you phrase that and how you address people. And uh, we're seeing a lot of research coming out at the moment. In fact, sitting on my desk at the moment, there's a guide on, on dealing with uh, uh, vaccine um, hesitancy, vaccination hesitancy, where in the United States, a study just come out saying that 50% of people say they're not going to be vaccinated. Now, that's a concern. And if you simply go out and say, get vaccinated, we know that's not going to work. So there's a big, big job for communication in areas of understanding of psychology and culture and social science, even before you get to the technology. And so we mustn't just focus on the technology. Uh, our communication professionals really need to get their heads around uh, some of these uh, issues like trust uh, and like dealing with disinformation. It's a fascinating time, and uh, I've, I'm heartened by the fact that you're, you know, the, the, the reports are piling up on your desk and you're continuing to uh, apply um, your considerable um, intellect and experience to some of these challenges over the, uh, the next little while. You, a, a final question, are you optimistic? I am optimistic, and the thing I'd say finally is that even though there's all these challenges there, what they mean is that this is a very exciting time for communication professionals. Uh, we really are needing uh, reliable, trustworthy communication in our society. We do need to deal with disinformation. We need to rebuild public trust. We need reliable health information. And so to me, it is uh, we've never needed our communication professionals more, and we certainly among those need to have uh, government communication professionals that are very capable, very ethical, and very effective. 
Well, Jim McNamara, thank you so much for, again, uh, gracing us with your presence on the GovComs podcast. And again, thank you for your presentation to the inaugural GovComs Festival, which was such a success just a few weeks ago. And again, I think the festival in many ways showed that this is a global issue. Um, and as Jim said, uh, I think one of the features to me of the GovComs Festival was to see the different perspectives and the different challenges of nations around the world, be it Vietnam or India, um, Africa, for example. So to understand the, the different nuances, and it is a rich area uh, and an important area, as Jim McNamara has described. So, uh, Professor Jim McNamara, thank you so much for joining us on GovComs today. Thank you for having me. And to you, the audience, a very big thank you for coming back once again. Delighted that you were able to do so. Um, we'll be back at the same time uh, in a couple of weeks' time for another episode of the uh, GovComs podcast. Uh, but for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.